another fork in the path for what computers could be is, you know, I like to think of, of like rugged objects or things that children would attach like little Tamagotchi or these little toy, you know, uh, devices to their backpacks. There are devices that you could build that are all at once accessible, hyper durable, and just very playful or very fun to use. And I think that one interesting path for the way urban computers could be developed is to sort of open ourselves up to the experience of something that could be thrown around and we wouldn't take it at, or make it as precious an object. All right, everybody, what's going on? This is the Other Life Podcast. I am Justin Murphy. This episode is one in a whole series all about Urbit. Urbit is a whole new computing and networking paradigm that many of you know I've become very interested in in recent months, really recent years, the past couple of years or so. I think Urbit is just way crazier and way cooler than most people realize. I think a lot of people are sleeping on Urbit and just don't really know about what's going on with it, what it is, and all the cool badass people building Urbit, building things on Urbit, creating on Urbit. And so now the development of the technology is really picking up and moving faster. I decided that when the Urbit annual conference came to town in Austin this past October, that I would sit down with 10 different people all across the network, people who are building the technology, people who are creating on the network, and people just in this culture that still I think a lot of people don't know much about. So I can honestly say this was one of the most interesting experiences I ever had at any kind of conference, to be perfectly honest. I spoke with CEOs, I spoke with engineers, I spoke with e-girls from Weird Theory Twitter. Like I'm not talking about Instagram chicks, I'm talking about like Weird Theory girls in you know the other life neck of the woods of of the the twitterverse and the blogosphere i talked with skitzed out writers and post everything podcasters and very possibly i spoke even with an alien uh, i'm only half kidding it was just wild man it was really really wild a really really interesting set of characters you're about to meet over the next 10 episodes and i'm just super pumped to bring this series out into the world so Real quick, before I forget, I do want to let you know if you're interested in Urbit, it's now easier than ever to get onto the network. So I actually have a bunch of Urbit planets, aka Urbit ships, pretty much uh, computers in the cloud, an individual computer in the cloud that can be yours. It also functions as your identity, and it's what you use to log onto the network and to use Urbit. So if you want to, I'll give you one. Uh, I have a bunch, and any listener of the show, I want to get you on Urbit. So um, you can just go to imperceptible.computer. I made a whole site just for this purpose. And yeah, drop your email and uh, I will get you a planet, aka an Urbit ship. All right. Um, depending on whether you're listening to this now or two years from now, uh, there may or may not be some kind of uh, modest fee associated with it. Uh, right now, I'm just giving them out for free. You don't need to have any coding or programming skills or experience whatsoever. It's very straightforward. I will give you your own planet and you'll be on the network playing around talking to people in five minutes, probably. Okay. That's imperceptible.computer. I will put a link in the show notes. And the final, final thing real quick, and then we'll get on to the show. This whole series was a labor of love. It was my idea. No one paid me to do it. I did, however, find eventually sponsors uh, so that it wasn't at all done at a loss. And uh, I'm very grateful to those sponsors. So this episode in particular is sponsored by the Dalton Collective. Dalton is the name of the first collectively owned and managed Urbit star. It's a membership organization run on Urbit, of course, that's focused on fellowship, sustainability, and sovereignty. Dalton, it's a small group. It's a private group. They're not advertising because they want to build their membership massively or anything like that. Uh, it's a small private group, but they do have a public channel. So uh, listeners of the podcast might want to go check out what they're up to, say hi to them. And you know, if you're interested in those values, as am I, then you might find the Dalton Collective interesting. And they're one of the earliest groups really kind of building community on Urbit. So shout out to them. Big thanks to the Dalton Collective for sponsoring this episode. And I'll, I will put a link in the show notes to the Dalton Collective. All right. That's all from me. Let me get out of the way and on to the show. All right, Ed, pleasure to meet you in person. Nice to meet you as well. You are it's our, good to be here. You're the very first victim we have in our, <laughs> our little mobile podcast studio here. It's going to be rad. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. Excited to, to talk with you. You are one of the lead designers at Tlon. Yes. So just for the audience, why don't you give us a little bit of background? Like how long have you been working on Urbit? Yeah. And what have been the main contributions that you've made to the Urbit ecosystem? Yeah, so I got started uh, in 2019 formally as a full-time employee. Although prior to that, I'd been doing some contracting work, just some non-interface related work. And before that, uh, it is, uh, 2017 is around when I discovered the project. So that's a bit of my timeline there. Okay. And yeah. what have you worked on mostly? So the, the core contribution, I guess, um, would be the sort of environment that defines that first interface, that one 
experiences when they boot up their Urbit. So we've been calling that landscape. Um, up until very recently with our latest update, landscape was effectively the group's product. But now we've separated groups out, which is kind of a Discord-like sort of deal. Um, you know, it's just for chatting with friends, with communities or whatever. And uh, now landscape is this totalizing ecosystem that now allows for software installation. So now anyone can build their own thing and just build it on Urbit. Right. So for people listening who maybe have never been on Urbit, basically when you boot up your Urbit and you log in, you see a kind of default screen. And now what that looks like is it's, it's a grid of apps basically. Yes, exactly. And this is new because only now, only recently can people make their own software on Urbit and share it with each other. And so soon we expect to see that grid uh, proliferate mm-hmm. with new apps. There should be more and more squares over time, right? As people, <laughs> yes, is that, exactly. is that, is that what to expect? Yeah. So, you know, what we've released right now and what we'll be presenting, uh, come assembly proper on the 15th or so will be what is, ter- is termed as the very first release of this thing. So it's still in a bit of a nascent state at the moment. Um, Talon itself will only be offering around three to four official applications. But the idea is that anyone who has been a developer on Urbit for a long time, um, is able to be able to port whatever work they were doing before and uh, make that available come that date. So uh, we should expect to see a fresh kind of outcrop of just, you know, fun new things. I know that some people have been working on more playful applications, like setting a little kind of locket-like picture on your home screen to look at whenever you log in. Um, some people have developed games, you know, so we're going to see an, a nice proliferation soon, I believe. Right. So this is the hope and the excitement in Urbit right now is that yes. the, mm-hmm. with the arrival of software distribution yes. now soon, hopefully there's going to be way more to do on there. People can make their own yeah. software, share it, and hopefully that's going to lead to a kind of proliferation of, of building and interesting mm-hmm. things that you can do with Urbit. Now let's talk a little bit about the design though, cause that's your, that's your forte. Yes. And what's interesting to me about Urbit is that even the haters on Urbit will generally be like, yeah, but the design is dope. So that's kind of nice for you, I'm sure, to hear that, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to learn a little bit more about what went into the design. What are kind of the influences? What are some of the design ideas or principles that are kind of most important to you personally and that, you know, manifest in in the Urbit design system that even the haters appreciate? Sure, sure. Yeah, so um, I would say that maybe to start off this conversation, just because it is helpful, it's worth distinguishing that there is a bit of an existing sort of uh, Tlon, certainly Urbit related as well, design canon of sorts that was mainly brought through uh, through Galen, you know, our CEO. He's uh, an architect by trade um, and ended up doing software, uh, much like I had previously been doing physical product design and I'm now finding myself in software. So it's a bit of a fun background there. Um, the design thinking and, and sort of approach that had gone into play before my arrival, um, when I think about, you know, Urbit in 2017 or so, the way that I like to describe it to people in terms of my own approach is that when I remember encountering it for the very first time, it was as though I was walking up and encountering like a heavy brass cube or a little cube made out of tungsten where when you pick it up with your hand, it's just dense, so dense, so heavy. And that was kind of the vibe I think that was transmitted, you know, through just the pure interface of it. At that time, Urbit was only a command line. So you can imagine that there must have been some very deeply spiritual thing or something very core to Urbit at the time that you could almost see as being sort of the underlying um, design intent is just to be this very dense, um, very solid feeling uh, object, Mm. almost mechanical. I know that the uh, one example that Galen likes to sort of procure for describing what Urbit should be like ideally is a CURTA calculator, which is uh, a very old style of calculator that uses basically like a a series of uh, gears to sort of calculate numbers. Mm. And it's characterized by being very simple mechanically, um, but also being very, very durable. You know, the thing could survive being buried in in dirt for many years. So at the heart of it, when I think about, you know, what Urbit is as a sort of design system, it's something that does feel that or impart that somehow, which is when you think about software kind of broadly, like writ large, there's generally a sense that it's it's almost as though one is existing within ever-shifting sands, you know. I don't know when the rug is going to be pulled out from underneath me, I don't know when, you know, various websites or interfaces are going to change. Our hope is to build something that feels, you know, very, very durable. It's the the word that we use often. So um, that's kind of where I wanted to start, where you kind of have this idea that Urban itself is this very durable um, thing that can seemingly last a while. When I came into into play, let's say, into the the process of designing interfaces at Talon, um, one of the sort of critiques that I had as a sort of uh, outside party at the time was that while I was able to sort of certainly feel the imparting of this density and this very deep spirit to the project, um, you know, it, it goes without saying that almost everyone who I guess would be a, uh, a detractor uh, who hasn't really gotten deep into the system would say that, oh, you know, what is this thing? This thing is crazy. This thing, 
uh, literally, you know, doesn't make sense to exist. Like it, it shouldn't exist in a way. And uh, a lot of this is because the thing is all at once like opaque as well. It's a little bit uh, uh, impenetrable in a way. And so um, when I started working on interfaces, one of the sort of mantras that I had at the time was to um, almost create something disarming in a way. Like that was kind of the core word for me was to take this thing that was um, at, at, at all at once, even a little bit uh, scary to some people. Like what is this system? What is this like, you know, mysterious, um, you know, thing that, you know, exists. And uh, I was trying to sort of bring into form this idea that Urbit could be a disarming thing. It could be something where it's almost like a warm handshake where it's like, oh, I didn't know you were a nice person. So the idea was to just make this thing a little bit more friendly. You can see this um, sort of, uh, come to play in some of the latest designs that we've released where we've previously had a very austere sort of black and white, very sort of sharp aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And now things have been softened out a little bit. And while we don't want to kind of lean fully into that, you know, I think there's a lot of very valid critique to be made about, you know, flat design and sort of the hyper corporate, um, softening of these very, you know, uh, terrible structures that exist out there. We don't want to at all sort of, uh, incorporate that sort of language. We do want to sort of make the thing, uh, as, as friendly as like a pebble, you know, something you could pick up and, and hold in your hand and feel good about it, you know, so. Right, right, totally. Yeah. And so what's up with the sigils? Where did that, or is that oh, how you yeah. even pronounce it? Sigil or is it sigil? It was, I don't know. It'd be sigil, yes. So, oh, it is sigil. Yeah, so that was a project that came before my time. One of the other designers that I worked with, Gav, um, he's an amazing guy. He's a genius. He was, uh, him and, and Galen were uh, paired together and basically developed the system all on their own. And so you all, and, and maybe this could be referenced later, but, you know, there was a, a, a blog post that went in about this sort of process that went into sigils. There were a lot of uh, sort of um, inputs into that, you know, a lot of previous systems, both artistic and design-wise, that went into their own process. I wouldn't be the best person to speak about it because that was before my time. Gotcha. But uh, from, from for what people, I do know, yes. For people listening who have no idea what I'm talking about, just the, the identities on the Urban Network are distinguished yeah. by unique uh, sigils. And these are procedurally generated, presumably, because there's like billions, right? Yes, yes, yes. There's a, there's a huge amount, yeah. Yeah. And so that was, I think, one of their main design challenges was to take something that had such a large namespace in the billions and create, you know, distinct identities that didn't overlap with one another and were relatively easy to pick apart from one another. And a lot of, I mean, a lot of brands today mm -hmm. at least have kind of one bold color generally. Yes. So was the decision to go pure black and white, was this, <laughs> was this like a big deliberation? Uh, was there debate over this or what's the idea behind like uh, super austere, black and white only, no colors? Yeah. So I think uh, this is something that was probably directly imparted from Galen if we were to suss out the origins of it. But I do get the sense that in 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 its part, in being a kind of radically simple new take on what a computer could be, there was this idea that it would be good to treat the thing as a, as a piece of paper in a sense, as a design object. You know, it's this uh, system that could have others' spirits, others' uh, personalities imparted into it. Which goes into a lot of, I guess, what you could call the general way that we sort of have encouraged customization of the system, where this thing sort of ships to you in the state of being a vessel of sorts, almost like a glass cup. Um, a sheet of paper is my go-to metaphor here. And uh, it's up to you to sort of like, you know, inscribe upon it, make it your own, that sort of thing. Right. Totally. Totally. So I know something that you're interested in when it comes to Urbit is thinking about the future of Urbit becoming hardware. Yes, yes. I also think this is very exciting. I don't know anything about what's going on in this regard, but mm -hmm. I mean, what I've always thought is I should be able to go to the store and buy like an Urbit computer, Absolutely. right? It should just be a laptop and it should have, it should be nice looking and functional, but it should have nothing on it other than Urbit. <laughs> and also it should cost like 500 bucks <laughs> instead of, instead of like 2000 for a new back MacBook yes. with all this like bloatware on it yeah, basically. Yeah. So th that's kind of my like hardware Urbit futurism mm -hmm. is like a $500 computer. That's just <laughs> really, really well-made, but simple. Yes. It only runs Urbit and you open it up and it's just like one computer that will last for a hundred years or something like that. If you don't drop it. Yeah, um, yeah. So what, do you, what do you think about when it comes to the future of, of Urbit and hardware? What does that look like to you? Oh, I mean, my hope is that it's beautiful. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's leagues above, you know, what is currently offered on the market now. Um, kind of uh, tailing that back to sort of, you know, what, are, what is interesting in terms of Urbit physicality to me is that there's, uh, given the sort of state of Urbit being an open project, we're already beginning to see that there are people in the community who are experimenting with building their own enclosures over existing platforms like the Raspberry Pi system. There are people who are even researching and sort of mapping out what it would take to build a NOC running CPU, which they're terming like an NPU, like a NOC PU, a processing unit, I should say. So um, there are people kind of working both from the sort of like very innards of what a computer can be to the sort of more aesthetic and more kind of shell oriented aspects of it, which I find insanely exciting. 
um, from my perspective. To sort of get into my own personal take here, you know, Talon isn't working on hardware at the moment. <laughs> my dream is to maybe eventually take us there. But, uh, you know, when I think about what hardware is and what computers could be, a funny mantra that um, I like to sort of like repeat, half in jest, half in seriousness, is that, you know, computers are flowers. Again, this is just a disarming statement to be that computers don't have to be these little glass baubles that we put into our pockets. They don't have to be these clamshell, you know, devices that we we do most of our computing on, you know, they could maybe someday take on something as light and as beautiful and as natural feeling as what a flower could be. To my own ends, you know, when I think about what a great notion of a physical orbit could be, one of my go-tos is just thinking about some of the origins of the project and its language and being a durable object. And I like to think of like stones or kind of like, you know, something that's been sitting in a river for a while that's worn away. In my mind, you know, it would be, like you said, amazing to just purchase an orbit from a store uh, plug it into a wall and just have the thing, you know, just work. That's kind of the dream here is to build a system that doesn't even necessarily require the internet to use or to kind of operate or to log in and make an account on, you know, you want a system where you can just kind of insert it into your life somehow and it just exists and you can kind of forget about it. Yeah, totally. I mean, an interesting question is like, why don't we already have that, right? Because computers like don't need to be so expensive, right? I mean, absolutely not. No, so, no. Do, yeah. I mean, why don't, I mean, I know there are, you can get kind of cheap uh, laptops or whatever, but yeah, yeah. they don't, no one really gets them. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not that popular, Yeah, you know? So like, what is the roadblock between us now and having that? It's a really good question. I mean, that's something that I, I, I would not at all claim to know the, the one solution that will necessarily fix this, but you know, I do get the sense that when we look at sort of the state of computers these days, um, it's almost explicitly, uh, an, an angle to the selling of these devices that right. they are now luxury objects effectively. You know, when I look at right. any of the latest sort of top uh, brand items, these things are, are positioned and sort of marketed and even imaged in a way that is akin to like a shiny watch or a piece of jewelry. And I should probably silence that. Oh, that's it. cool. No worries. Um, but the, the thing is that, you know, what is being sold are, are baubles in a way, like these little delicate sort of trinkets that one sort of adorns themselves with. When I think about, you know, what another fork in the path for what computers could be is, you know, I like to think of, of like rugged objects or things that, you know, um, yeah. like, like children would attach like little Tamagotchi or these little toy, you know, uh, devices to their backpacks you know, when they're younger, it's like, you know, there are devices that you could build that are all at once accessible, hyper durable, and just very playful, or very fun to use. And I think that one interesting path for the way urban computers could be developed is to sort of take a path where we sort of open ourselves up to the experience of something that could be thrown around and we wouldn't take it at, or make it as precious an object. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Like, I almost wonder if you could just for fun, mm -hmm. like buy wholesale a bunch of cheap <laughs> laptops, yeah. like from China or whatever, mm -hmm. and uh, just like load them with Urbit and nothing else. Yeah. And then like sell them on a secondary market. For, Dude, like, <laughs> I mean, to, to be frank, like there are people in the community who are doing this, not necessarily with laptops as the form factor, but I do know that I have been DMing people who we I will be seeing here at Assembly who have been working on effectively taking Raspberry Pis you know, shoving Urbit in there, making it the first boot thing that you see okay. and uh, enclosing it within some bit of hardware. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, people are already starting the, starting the work for us. That's pretty cool. Like I would buy, I would buy one of those. I think that'd well, be, yeah, that'd be really yeah. cool. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, there are a lot of projects out there that sort of claim to be kind of self-sovereign or very personal sort of uh, servers there. They, they almost all unabashedly use Raspberry Pi as a platform, wrap it up in a box and, and pretend, you know, to sell the thing like that's kind of mind blowing. This is new. This is your Bitcoin server or whatever. Um, but in fact, it's just a bunch of, you know, like web services that kind of run off the thing. And I feel that while there's a bit of, of, of sort of a, like there's a path there that we would need to tread as well for in sort of like these initial Urbit computers. I feel that given that Urbit is in fact this virtual system, this overlay, there's sort of a bit more of a reality to having Urbit running on one of these devices and someone claiming that one of these things is like a personal server that just kind of exists using the existing stack. Right, right. So now that there's software distribution, maybe it would be interesting for the audience to hear about how you think about designing applications for Urbit. Yeah. Like what, what are just some heuristics or some principles that come to mind for you when, mm -hmm. it, when it comes to designing apps for the Urbit system? Yeah. So the very particular take that Talon is, is uh, making with respect to the ecosystem is that um, the way that I've liked to term it is that we're almost providing digital basics in a way where you have, you know, in, in life, when you're wearing garments, you know, you have a t-shirt, you have a set of trousers, maybe some sneakers. There are these basic items that, you know, you, you use day in and day out. Um, in a very similar manner, when I think about what the ethos of Talon software for Urbit is, in a similar manner, you know, uh, to basics uh, in terms of garments, I think the idea is to basically provide 
very um, minimal is not the right word. I feel that imparts way, way too much baggage, but there's an approach here that could be taken to basically offer an archetypical version of what a chat could be, of what a DM software could be, maybe someday of what you know a spreadsheet software or drawing software could be. I think when I think about any projects that Talon would likely be investing a lot of time and effort into, it would be to make these digital basics just so solid, so solid, as solid as, as Urbit really should be as a system. The idea being that um, to the point about, you know, what, what are we trying to sort of impart into this work? You know, um, when you think about the sort of uh, discords of the world or, or mm -hmm. slacks or all these other um, Silicon Valley uh, sort of uh, projects, you know, there's this idea to make these things fun. Let's make work fun. Let's make it playful. And uh, what we're trying to do here is sort of like not kid ourselves here. You know, we're, we're building what is, in fact, like a very new system that is a little bit sort of scary and kind of like hard for people to understand. And rather than lean into the weirdness of this and build weird software ourselves, we want to, you know, make software that actually provides that bridge of understanding where maybe I exist now in a Web2 world um, or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, uh, pre-Urbit, I should say. And then maybe bridging into Urbit should feel just as comfortable as you would expect. It isn't like a shocking new place. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so the production of these Urbit basics, as you call them, things mm -hmm. like some kind of word processor, some kind yeah, of uh, yeah. spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this will be the responsibility of Tlon, or is this going to come from the community? Like, how oh. should people think of, like, mm -hmm. if, if you're an engineer out there listening to this, right, yes. and you want to build, should, do you expect individuals and groups to emerge that are working on the the Excel spreadsheets for mm -hmm. Urbit? Is that going to come from the community, or is it going to come from Tlon? I, I not only expect it, I actively encourage it. If, if uh, I'm very active. From, from the community. Oh, absolutely. Because it sounded yes. like you were naturally uh, saying it as if it was like on the roadmap for Tlon to produce. Yeah, well, so the idea is that we'll always be honing the tools that we have set forth so far. You know, one, one sort of bit of historical insight into why we've gone on the path that we have with respect to the software we're delivering is that early on, um, maybe uh, a little bit before uh, 2020, you know, we were still in the process of having all of our internal communications be spread out, you know, various via, via various uh, messaging platforms and such. And one of these, you know, one day, you know, there was just a, this idea that, you know, we're building this thing, why aren't we using it, you know? And so we got everybody from Tawn into uh, what we termed OS one at the time and realized it was, it was a mess. You know, we, we really got to fix this thing in order for us to use it. And through that process of experiencing our own interfaces, we built out what is effectively, you know, software as a thesis in a way as to how we would ourselves like to sort of organize ourselves or work with one, one another. So in a way you can see that the current state of, you know, what people encounter as the default set of Urbit software is informed by that path of Talon itself thinking about how do we want to sort of get work done or sort of just do basic communications with one another. And, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, whether we end up working on a word processor or a spreadsheet, it's not so much that this is something that we, uh, we won't do. It's, it's that we are honing ourselves really about how we ourselves are, would like to be doing our own work on, uh, Urbit itself. Right. So with it becoming cheaper to get mm -hmm. on the network, that will definitely be a boon to adoption. Yes. What else? Are there particular bottlenecks that you, you see are, are in the way that, once we lift those, mm -hmm. uh, we should expect growth of the network or yeah. what else is relevant to think about? So the economic one that we just went over, I think is sort of one of the big ones. It's one of the looming ones. That I think everybody who's encountered Urbit and even speculators and sort of detractors outside have all been aware that the economic one uh, blocker is a significant one. The other uh, sort of more mechanical uh, roadblocks in place that are easily solved in, in the sense of, of just labor, but uh, that just need to be done really is just the general way that we handle the sort of bridging mechanism between um, the acquiring of an Urbit, which is still a sort of, uh, you know, it, it is based in Web3 effectively using Ethereum. And so there's a lot of cruft that we basically have to paper over there or improve heavily on the front of Bridge, which for those of you who have used Urbit uh, probably are uh, well aware of, you know, bridge.urbit.org is basically the mechanism by which someone activates an Urbit, gets into the network and et cetera. And basically there has been a, a very long running list of issues that we've all been aware of with that interface in particular that we do have um, major updates in store, um, which hopefully should make it a little bit easier to use. But the idea is to overhaul that whole structure very soon to basically make it such that you know, getting into Urbit, getting a planet started could be something very, very smooth, maybe on the order of just setting up um, you know, an account on like a, a SaaS product, like a Netflix, you know, it should be as easy as just kind of getting in quickly. And there are ways to basically do this just in terms of the sheer sort of user experience of it, the design of it. Um, but we have been basically wanting to wait for L2 to ship this layer two economic situation 
or solution and uh, plug it into the redesign of these new interfaces to make all of that a lot easier. But my hunch is that, you know, once we're able to improve Bridge to the point where maybe after acquiring an Urbit somehow, whether it's through an exchange or a friend or what have you, the idea is that you could maybe take this thing and just plug it into Bridge as a system and maybe get started right away with, you know, an executable that could just boot up Urbit really easily locally. Or maybe you could plug into a hosting service or a variety of them. There are a lot of ways that we could just basically make that whole process a lot smoother. Okay. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Now, for people who have never been on Urbit and are just kind of listening to this and maybe they're fascinated and curious, like <laughs> give us some, give us some examples of like what kinds of cool things have you found on Urbit or, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. re- important relationships that have developed or just for you and your experience on the network, interacting with other people, yes. like what, what are some of the most interesting or coolest things you've, you've gotten from the network? So I think the absolute number one, most amazing, I think, uh, interaction that I've had on Urbit was that, um, as a design team, you know, we're, we're primarily working on interfaces, you know, just the sort of like product design related aspects of the work that we do at Talon. Um, for a while, you know, we've been wanting to sort of hire an artist, like a proper artist, a proper graphic designer, someone who could basically provide a lot of the sort of like world building illustrative elements of what Urbit could be. And, um, so, you know, while I was sort of like in the process of seeking someone out, I met this person, um, you know, just kind of like in the like outer internet, just kind of like you know, randomly, I just came up, uh, across her work and shot off an email. I was like, Hey, you know, you're cool. Your work is sick. You know, do you want to help us out with this work? Um, you know, so time transpired and she found herself very quickly in Urbit. And so we've actually been doing our work fully just through text. The sort of mind blowing element to this is that she actually, um, is not English fluent. She does speak a little bit of English, but she's been basically doing all of her work. Like we haven't called one another. We've never videoed. It's all been through Urbit primarily. And so there's this crazy sort of like bridging of, uh, what you could say are like completely different languages, different cultural contexts that has happened, which actually has been enabling us to get really serious work done. And it's all been happening through Urbit. And she's actually set up uh, a community in, all in Urbit that is effectively like a music sharing and sort of just kind of uh, like a everybody share music, everybody listen to mixtape sort of deal. And it's one of my favorite communities on the system right now. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Is that a public group or private? Yeah, yeah. No. So the website itself is at doorlink, door.link. And uh, I could uh, rattle off the... Uh, the sort of urbit ur- uh, endpoint of that maybe in text or yeah or i can put the, i'll put it in the show notes yeah but it is public anyone can join it it's just a very very chill group it's very fun that's really cool interesting yeah. so, a- anything else um people ideas yeah, uh, so, concepts that you've encountered only on urbit yeah so one of the elements of urbit that i find interesting is that a lot of the people who find themselves uh into the uh the urbit world are interested in this idea of world building. You know, what does it take to build a world? There are people who are interested in sort of like the more fantastical sort of, you know, liter- literary or sort of science fiction elements of world building. Um, but there are also people who take it very seriously and, and kind of take the act of what Urbit is as an exercise in building a new world effectively. You know, uh, thus the phrase we like to rattle off on, on social media, new world energy. It's kind of like the mantra here. And so, you know, one of the sort of... M- more interesting groups that I've been kind of involved in or trying to facilitate on my own end is this group that's effectively working to become effectively like a, a design workshop or a world building sort of uh, design shop of sorts that could basically act as, you know, maybe like a, a guild-like mechanism to get people gathered together, think about how to enact new mechanisms or think about urban broader ways. Um, it's not something I've discovered per se. I had to kind of manifest it out of, out of nowhere, but uh, I've been finding amazing people sort of like glomming onto the, the project and who find it fascinating. But um, I feel like, you know, it's, it's just a part of like the broader energy that I've seen in a lot of the other groups that I've witnessed on Urban is that people are coming into the into the fore with just this really interesting sort of energy that's just huge. It's like it's energy that I don't think you would necessarily encounter in a lot of other um, sort of like, a, I guess, like social gathering places on the Internet. You know, people here are interested in enacting very large almost insane structures, you know, like structures that, you know, would seem ridiculous to people on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Someone told me that you have a design for an ebook reader on Irvit. Oh dude. Do you yes. want to, so pitch us on this, explain, okay. explain kind of the, 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 pro- <laughs> the problem, why yeah. Irvit needs an ebook reader and then like how you conceptualize this for, to be built on Irvit. Okay. So we can reel it back a bit. I remember in the very first OS one release, I made it a, I, I promised, I like swore on, on the air that we will build the most beautiful, the best uh, reading software that the world has ever seen. Hmm. I'm still holding myself to that personally. Um, this sort of uh, observation that I've made being like, a, you know, someone who loves reading, someone who loves researching apart from my work is just that any book management software research citation management software is terrible. Mm. Absolutely terrible. It's a, uh, 
there is no good solution. And one of my kind of core thoughts here, of like a thesis, I would say, is that you find that a lot of the the um, the cruft of these softwares is really because you know they centralize themselves around um, uh, markets in a way, um, but markets in sort of like uh, maybe uh, maybe a, a not so great interpretation of what a market could be in the sense that you know when you look at the Kindle, when you look at any ebook reader, iBook, whatever, you know they all kind of revolve around the very first thing that you pop into is like a place to buy books. And when I think about ideal reading software, you know what's at the center of my bookshelf at home is not a vending machine for to buy more books. It is my books. And so when I think about what an idealized um, reading software could be, putting basically the structure of one's library sort of at the fore of it and allowing it to be sort of just as simple as a nice wooden bookshelf is is core to the whole thing. Ensuring that the typography of the thing could be, you know, uh, sort of, uh, you know, pushed and pulled at will. I feel like, you know, this, it sounds simple to say, it, it may be even like naively so, but I do get the sense that there are very large elements of current reading systems that can be ripped out and replaced with something much more simple that I hope to someday build on Urbit. So how does the business model logic mm-hmm. m- map out then on Urbit? Like why would Urbit not just over time replicate the same kind of app store, or bad, yeah. in- bad incentives kind of issues that you're, that you're mm-hmm. describing? Well, it's, it's interesting because one of the sort of core mechanics of Urbit is, a, and this sounds very uh, simple to people who do know Urbit, but for people who don't know of Urbit as a technical structure, the magic of Urbit is that everybody is running their server. Everybody is running their own computer, which you might take for a granted or for a given. You know, if you're on your laptop, you think that that's your computer. But the magic of Urbit is that when software is, is being used to connect with someone on Urbit, you are all running your own instance of that software. So in a, in a very real way, you know, when I'm running landscape, it is my landscape. I could do whatever to it. And as long as I keep the sort of core connections there, I can still communicate with anyone on the network. So I could go all out and win amplify it, make it crazy, um, skeuomorphic, whatever, and it would still be able to function as, as expected. The magic of an Urbit ebook reader is that because of the fact that everybody is their own server, you know, my library is my library. Um, a market can never be inserted into it if I basically don't allow it. Then the, the, there's a really interesting element to the fact that sharing a book is still a, what we would call like a P2P action. And so me sharing a book with you is like opening up a connection between literally the the uh, the two of our, our servers. It's the, the two of our sort of mechanical structures that are now sharing in the the, the resource that is, is there. And so uh, I just get the sense that as that underlay mechanic, the fact that everybody is in fact running their own server um, and the software on top of it is what makes this, I guess, much more of a resilient uh, structure and something that you wouldn't necessarily need to worry about. Um, arbitrary centralized markets kind of um, being imparted into. That being said, there's an additional element here which gets really cool, which is that if you are an author, you know, we want to sort of obviously build out mechanisms that will allow you to get paid for the work that you do. And so due to the, in the way that this is all working, um, we're hoping to build a mechanic known as uh, like gating or like modifiers to arbitrary uh, applications. We might be starting off with group channels, but the idea is that as an author, I could maybe enact something of like a payment gate on, you know, uh, you know, a, a book, which is effectively like a node on my computer, on my Urbit. And uh, maybe in order to attain that book, you know, you have to pay it, you know, a one-time fee. So there are ways to sort of like build markets that are more sort of person to person. Um, but it's something that still needs to be worked out, I feel. Yeah, it's fascinating. And actually, this yeah. is a really good example just to use as a test case for mm-hmm. kind of unpacking some of the, the business logics. Because mm-hmm. so I understand what you say about how when everyone has their own server, mm-hmm. you have different incentives to, let's say, build an app that you own, you mm-hmm. can you control. Yeah. But will there be the incentives like for you, for someone like you or an individual or even a small group? It takes a lot of resources to build, let's say an ebook reader, right? Mm -hmm. That's probably, I'm assuming that's like a lot of development time, a lot of, a lot of hours. Mm -hmm. So the, the argument in favor of the app stores is because you can make a large, a large amount of money in these big, uh, you know, demand aggregators, Mm -hmm. you can therefore fund big operations. So Mm -hmm. realistically the critique of, of, of this like vision would be at what point is it going to be economically incentivized for someone like you to actually build a team and engineer an ebook reader on like a reasonable development schedule, right? Cause mm-hmm. your point is well taken, but if there's not an app store for you to sell it, like realistically, when and how are people actually going to build badass apps? It's a really good question. I mean, it's, it's one of the sort of core questions that we are still continually asking ourselves with the deployment of software distribution as a system, you know, at, at the present moment, the system is so new, it's so nascent that we don't even really have 
any holds barred on applications that could, you know, theoretically, you know, just look at your orbit, you know, or, or do things with it. And so we're kind of in a bit of a stage where it's a Wild West sort of situation where, you know, if you download uh, software from Talon, it's kind of implicit at this point that you've been trusting the Talon as a, as a company for a while, which is, is, is uh, it's a good thing. And we want to ensure that trust can be maintained despite Urbit being a very sort of like decentralized system. And so when we think about, you know, what it would take to sort of get people into the mix of actually developing economically viable software and funding it appropriately, there are still some things that we do intend on building to basically make it such that, you know, one could build gates or payment gates around software um, and be able to sort of actually make money off of it. You might not get the same markets that you would expect with, you know, Amazon, but uh, the idea is that, you know, you're finding a very core kind of excited base of people who would hopefully buy into the work that you're doing on Urbit. That being said, um, you know, uh, when I do think about, uh, you know, just payments in general on Urbit, one of the sort of magical things about Urbit as a sort of totalizing structure is that it treats one's computer almost as though it's kind of like an actualized self, like in, in real space, you know, if I, you know, do something negative in real life, you know, there are consequences in a very real way. Urbit has sort of enacted itself to sort of act in a very similar manner where, you know, there are systems put into place to effectively, you know, censure um, or basically block planets from, you know, performing actual packet sending between Urbits. There's always that that's already, already been built in. But I also think that, you know, payments with respect to Urbit is interesting because, you know, when someone basically takes an application into their Urbit, it is theirs, like very, in a very literal sense. Like if I buy an object from a grocery store that is now mine, it like consume, rip apart, you know, throw away and not even use whatever. In a very similar manner, when one is imparted with a software in Urbit, at that moment, you know, you can do whatever you want with it. And so, you know, when you pay for software in Urbit, it's not as though, uh, you know, you're being sort of subjected to software that you don't actually have ownership over or can't do anything with, you would in fact own the thing that you have acquired. So the same logic could be applied to books, to texts, you know, what, what have you. So how long do you think it'll be until we start seeing in the software distribution, which is now available? Like mm -hmm. how, how long until someone pushes an app mm -hmm. and they charge like, you know, five bucks for it or something? Is this like within six months? Is this within like yeah. more like three years or what? No, I think this is something that we actually anticipate happening relatively soon. You know, I think it's been acknowledged by a lot of people at Talon and in the greater ecosystem that ensuring that, you know, uh, transactions can be made is actually a very core mechanic that we need to lean into soon. And there's a built-in Bitcoin wallet now. There is, is cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that has existed for a while. That was a really great project to just um, you know, get that experiment just out in the world so people can see what that looked like on Urbit. I think some of the uh, further out dreams of that were basically to figure out how to build integrations into landscapes so that maybe you could have a pay-gated uh, community or a channel and what have you. So there are a lot of remaining mechanics that we have yet to suss out. I think that this is really just going to be the uh, subject matter of much more heavy kind of SDK or API-like development on Talon's side. You know, now that Grid exists, um, there's like a little bit of a less sort of pressure for having Talon kind of be the orchestrator of what that core experience is like. And so what we can begin to lean into is like how to make search great or how to make it easy to implement notifications into your own applications. I feel like ensuring that, you know, payment gating and such and sort of arbitrary applications can be opened up to one another is a very core part of that. Okay. Fascinating. So there are, there are now startups that are being built on Urbit, which, oh, yeah. which is very interesting. It is, yes. I, I, I know of at least one. I don't know of many. Actually, I guess two. But mm -hmm. um, are there interesting developments going on right now that you know of that you're interested in or excited about or, or you could share anything about, A? And then the second part of that question, B, would be, mm -hmm. you know, what do you see as the low-hanging fruit for, like, the next app that should be built like tomorrow. Like, so if you're an engineer listening to this or maybe an investor listening to this, yeah. like, do you see an opportunity where it's like, this is ready to be made now it's needed. It would be valuable and it could actually start making money like now rather than later. Is there anything that comes to mind? So it's kind of a double-sided question. Yeah. Well, the very first question or addressing that some of the more interesting outstarts uh, or upstarts that I've noted in the, in the system are Terrell, which I think is the big one. Basically, what I see is their primary aim is basically making payments on Urbit a lot easier. The work that they're doing alone is going to unlock a lot of possibility here, in my opinion, and I'm excited for what they're doing. The other sort of upstart here that isn't yet a company, but in my opinion should very, very much be one, is the sort of Knox CPU project, which is at the moment I know it's a bit of a, an experiment. It's a bit of a side project of the person working on it, but I do get the sense that exploring the ways in which Urbit can increasingly become standalone, can rest upon metal and not have to worry about other systems uh, interfering, I think is very core to Urbit's future in, in a lot of ways. And 
how does that business model work though on on the Knox CPU? Like, who are they sell? Are they going to be selling physical computers, or who's the cl- who's yeah, the customer? Well, well, in a similar manner to how a lot of the work that Nvidia or um, Intel or AMD are doing, in that they are sort of like the shoulders upon what a lot of the rest of the uh, the sort of internet and networking and computer uh, sort of uh, you know economic infrastructure is really rests upon these fundamental developments. And in a very similar sense, at you know, kind of relating. Uh, back to the time of, of you know, uh, of like Bell Labs being the sort of people who were sort of pioneering what it meant to uh, perform te- telephone communications like across America and figure out, you know, what are the sort of core things that need to be done in order to make that better. I think that in a similar manner, having a lot of fundamental develops uh, developments uh, basically arise within this new urban universe is very important to the future of the project. Um, to that sort of uh, end, there was another project that I actually had in mind that really literally just escaped me right now that I think was worth mentioning. Oh, yes, which is the the project and the subject matter of moons. I unironically believe that one of the more important companies that will probably emerge in the coming years uh, in the Urbit world or the Urbit universe is a company that focuses on moons exclusively as a use case. Hmm. For those of uh, you in the audience who are not aware of what moons are, when you think about this sort of a uh, hierarchy of, of Urbit sort of a uh, like node space, basically what constitutes the internet that is Urbit, moons are the four billion or so nodes that rest upon or underneath each planet, which are what most people use on Urbit to do day-to-day communications. And so when you think about a planet sort of roughly approximating, you know, what a person is or a family or a small unit of people, moons are kind of like devices. The idea being that maybe one day I could run my Urbit, you know, at my home in a nice little server that looks beautiful, and I can maybe deploy a moon to my phone or to my laptop. And so what moons could effectively represent is a network of devices. And when you begin to extrapolate this idea of what moons could represent, you know, you're talking about, you know, people being able to run their own CDNs, like content delivery networks, where I don't have to worry about Cloudflare, you know, to, you know, that which could shut me off at any time. I could maybe deploy 12 moons to various servers across the uh, the world and build a personal CDN. And the idea is that if you could automate this, if you could automate, you know, the creation or the sort of deployment of thousands of moons at once, you could begin to imagine, you know, worlds of sensor networks arising. Um, one of our uh, engineers at Talon uh, has expertise in sort of like uh, quantum computing, I think is his background, and has thought that, you know, when you think about what um, moons could be when you think about what a network of computation could could represent. There are a lot of really interesting sort of experiments that could happen in that world. I think his his use case that he likes to bring up as like a favorite is a farmer, you know, having a sort of swarm of drones that are each running a moon that are themselves like sensing mechanisms that could, you know, tell you how your your land is doing and such. So in my opinion, it's moons are kind of like a little bit of a, a dark horse at the moment. You know, they're kind of like this thing that nobody really pays attention to, but I could seriously imagine, you know, companies arising out of what they represent. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's, and who is that engineer? That is uh, Dr. Poproxy. We all call him Poprox. Uh, his uh, urban name is Datnut Pollen. Like, it's it's a, an amazing name. Yeah, I got to talk to that guy because that sounds really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And I mean, what can can you do moons right now? Like, can I put you, a, you can absolutely use them right now? And can you can I like make a network like for my for my friends and family? Yeah, like, how, yeah. So how do you do it? Well, so right now this is all performed within the Urbit command line. If you're running a planet, the incantation that we would use is effectively just bar, which is that little vertical line on the keyboard, moon. And by doing that, you get a new name, uh, which is a little bit longer than a normal Urbit planet name, and you get the key that could be used to boot it up on any device. So it's very simple. Mechanically, you know, it does involve command line stuff. It's something that I wouldn't necessarily recommend to people who are like new to using computers and certainly to Urbit, but it does work and it is mechanically simple to do. I think the issue with moons at the moment are all very trivial. They're all easy to, to overcome. It's just the fact of the matter that right now moons don't automatically sync uh, you know, data with their their uh, root planet. So if I have you know twenty applications installed on my Urbit right now, if I boot up a moon, it won't be a perfect mirror there. I'll have to perform some additional computation to ensure that they're mirrored. And at the same time, though, so on the converse of this issue, is the fact that if you were to, for example, you know, deploy you know, a handful of moons to your family for them to use, which you very well could, and in my opinion, in the future should do as like how you primarily use Urbit. Right now, you would effectively have full, you know, read access over their computers for all intents and purposes. So, not the greatest for privacy. No, if I want I want that over I mean, all if, my if, family if members. If it's for your family, yeah, yeah maybe I got to keep an eye thing. on them. I got to keep an eye on them. <laughs> exactly. Maybe it's a good thing. It all it all depends, of course. But I do get the sense that one of the very sort of trivial issues to overcome with moons is just making their ability to sort of be set in in appropriate ways 
that, you know, could respect privacy, could not, could call back to the planet, could not. You know, there are just some sort of like very core mechanisms that need to be explored there. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about the creator economy and uh, kind of the future yeah, patterns we expect exciting. to see on Urbit. I know it's something you've given some thought to. Yeah. I've seen some of your mock-ups for mm -hmm. kind of token-gated communities. Yes. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you see the near future of, of mm -hmm. creators on Urbit and, and, and maybe from a design perspective in particular, since that's kind of your forte. Yeah. Like what, how, how do you think about designing that? How do you expect that to look visually and feel and function? Yeah, so, well, this kind of cuts to one of my core critiques about the sort of often used structures that do exist for creators or for people organizing communities, which is that when your software is, um, you know, Discord, when it's, you know, uh, what is the one that I'm thinking of? I think it's actually like Patreon yeah. or Substack or any of these really, you know, you're kind of at the behest of these things. And the way in which you sort of have to cobble them together as a creator, while that is kind of like the primary aim of a lot of work that a creator is doing is kind of cobbling together a universe, it's not the most friendly process. And I think that when I imagine what, you know, creator-friendly uh, ecosystems or interface ecosystems could be on Urbit, I'd like to think of a thing that just feels you know, exponentially more pleasant to sort of cobble together, to to build yourself, mm. you know, in the sense that maybe, um, maybe, uh, you know, building a group that sort of, you know, uh, has very certain characteristics that you want to sort of uh, enact on it are as simple as just filling out a form instead of having to sort of like, uh, you know, how do I figure out API keys and how to sync, you know, my Twitch to my Patreon or what have you, you know, I think that there are much more elegant ways to handle this. And a sort of other side to this critique, I would suppose, is that, you know, I think one of the sort of core mechanisms that many DAOs or many other sort of Web3 friendly um, upstarts are sort of doing right now is to basically build bots that exist in Discord, where, you know, that feels rickety. It feels like really, you know, uh, definitely just it doesn't feel like very pleasant to use. It's like you're kind of like uh, using rubber bands to sort of tie a bunch of straws together to make a house. You know, it just doesn't feel very good. And uh, one of my sort of ways that I really think we could very literally and kind of uh, just uh, bring to bear the, the issue here in terms of interface design is to make it such that rather than sort of feeling that you're piecing together, you know, discrete APIs through something that feels kind of flimsy, like a robot or a bot, you know, maybe we want to sort of treat the assemblage of a creator space as being more akin to like designing land, for example, like in sort of, the, if you can imagine some of these games where it's like, Oh, I'm able to set out farmland and, and, you know, maybe factories or something. It'd be really cool to basically take, take a creator space as a topography of sorts. And so, Right now in our group's product, it's very kind of archetypically similar to most other things that exist out there. You know, you have channels and you have kind of a, a primary space for chatting in. And I, I think that in a very literal manner, one of my thoughts here as a sort of very simple sort of uh, sort of uh, uh, addressing of this is to make, uh, you know, channel types be sort of the medium through which you enact some of these things or these ideas that, you know, you would be otherwise cobbling together. So that if I'm a creator, you know, maybe I want to, build a wallet and have that be surfaced so that, you know, everybody in the community can pool funds somehow. That could just be another channel type rather than a bot that you have to kind of query. Um, if I want to have like a space that acts as a blog, you know, we have notebooks right now, which are okay, but they're not the best. You know, that could be explored to be much more rich as an interface itself that rests within the group structure. So when I think about topography, um, making these things a little bit less flimsy to use, I think that, you know, maybe leaning into and evolving our ideas of what channels could be with respect to a singular group could be a way of thinking about it. Right. Okay. So what you're basically saying is because right now when you mm -hmm. log into a group on Urbit, it's mm -hmm. basically chats, yeah, collections of links mm -hmm. and notebooks. There are these mm -hmm. kind of uh, a, a small number of types of channels basically yes. that allow for different types of, mm -hmm. of data to be posted to the group. And what you're saying basically is that that could be spun out into any number of different channels. Maybe yeah. you have one for video, maybe you have one for, it's an mm -hmm. audio podcast exactly, feed, that, yeah. like an RSS feed you can kind of link into yeah. your phone I mean, or something like that. Yeah, the idea really is, it's simple. It's it's not very mind blowing, but it's to treat this as like a developable space. I can almost imagine maybe as an urban developer, there's one path where you could develop your, and build your own standalone applications. But if you want to maybe plug into existing Tlon works, what I'm hoping we can encourage soon is building effectively software development kits for um, groups themselves where you know, rather than publishing a bot or something that feels flimsy, I could literally build a channel type and maybe sell that channel type to other, you know, creators. You could imagine like sort of markets okay, of channels kind of emerging from this, this sort of structure. Okay, that's fascinating because I think you're right to diagnose this problem that currently if you're a creator, it's like you have all these different tools, all mm -hmm. these different sites, and you can kind of glue some of the APIs together using mm -hmm. tools like Zapier, mm -hmm. but it's a massive headache and it, it's just clearly not, like clearly the, the ideal, mm -hmm the platonic form of all of this is 
you make shit mm-hmm. and then like people who fuck with it come to you and yes, like yes. hang out around it. Like that's basically mm-hmm. all, all that's tr- all yeah, this is trying yeah. to be mm-hmm. is that that that's all it needs to do. That's the mm-hmm. essence of it. Mm-hmm. And yet to do that, you have to manage all these different systems and glue them together in these awkward ways. Yeah, and I yeah. mean, like Grant and I right now, we're building uh, IndieThinkers.org community, which is like a dedicated kind of private membership community mm-hmm. for a specific type of person, uh, specific types of things that we try to provide. But we need basically to run events. Mm-hmm. We need to pe- we need to be able to schedule people for those events when they sign up, like. For when they sign up for things, we need to feed them live stream videos, sometimes recorded videos. We need like a library of stuff, sometimes a place to actually watch and chat live stuff. And it's like, we are cobbling together all these different things. Mm -hmm. Whereas what we actually need is so simple. It's like, Mm -hmm. we have all these people in one place. They're a certain type of person. We want to build structures for them. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be that hard for us to either build them ourselves or maybe hire an engineer that can basically make this like custom system where all we need to do is say, okay, you're interested in this, come here. Mm -hmm. And then once you're there, there's all this stuff that we organize how we want, we connect it how we want. And it shouldn't be that like these 20 different tools we have to cobble together. And we're like constantly, we're constantly like messaging the, these services and being like, Hey, when are you planning to drop this feature? We like really need, we really, (laughs) we really need like, um, you know, email, reminders for this thing uh and we can't really do this thing on your tool until we have email reminders but it's like ideally we're just governing one space that we control Mm -hmm. and maybe we have one engineer who is adding the functionality all in one place like that Mm -hmm. like it's just obviously Mm -hmm. so superior and that's where it needs to be Mm -hmm. um that is the hope and i'm just kind of like okay how do we get there (laughs) and and, but faster like how how can we get there faster you know like i'm i'm trying to figure out like when when will it be economically viable for me to actually just like maybe could you make a could a creator make their kind of creator brand like a company hire an engineer like have an onboard engineer Mm -hmm. who like is an urban hacker Mm -hmm. who basically like just makes could someone come on board and make my urban group like so fire that <laughs> I can sell, I can, I can basically sell access for like a good amount of money. Like indie thinkers is we charge $450 a year. Mm-hmm. It's like not cheap because we provide a lot of shit and, and, it, yes. and it's cool. So I feel like for 450, like our annual run rate is something like $40,000 mm-hmm. at the moment. Mm-hmm. And not, to, not even mentioning the courses we do, which mm-hmm. can make, they generally make like 30,000 a piece. I feel like that's enough. It's not massive, but I feel like that's enough economic firepower to be like, we have an engineer. Let's make all of this stuff custom in the Urbit group. Mm-hmm. And for selling things at that price, I feel like I should be able to pay an engineer oh, absolutely. Um, to be able to make all of this stuff custom in Urbit. Is that like, how close are we to that? <laughs> well, so the good news here is that there are sort of social structures that exist that are currently residing within the uh, Urbit Foundation. We do have the grant system, which is something that I feel like most people who are aware of Urbit are familiar with. That doesn't really cut to the core of what you're desiring here, though, which is like that direct injection of sort of capital or sort of just, um, you know, some means of basically just organizing the work ASAP. The other news here that um, I think has yet to be fully announced, but maybe might be worth mentioning is that there is a plan to sort of offer alternative systems or structures that sort of rest in parallel to, to grants so that they aren't really oriented to the individual who is interested in hacking on Urbit, building a one-off thing, but actual sort of more deep, in, like sort of institutionally recognized um, entities who could actually maybe af- af- like affect the development paths of some of the core systems put into place. So something to look forward to. I know that uh, on our own roadmap, I mean, I'm not at all promising anything per se, but mm-hmm. I do know that the discussion of expanding the capabilities of groups are our sort of uh, archetypical you know, community structure is to make it increasingly archetypical. And this isn't even necessarily from a design, like a visual design perspective. You know, when we think about what Discord is, it's like a very opinionated, very branded piece of software. We kind of want to further dissipate, I think, the notion of what groups are, maybe even make it into, you know, like I keep saying, much more of a sort of system of APIs in a way, a way that, you know, a group is just a list of ships and a list of services. Maybe it could be that simple and we could make it a much more malleable space, which I think is sort of one of the the end goals, I think, for what, what realizing groups is as a standalone application is currently. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. people have to appreciate that when you know that you can retain all of this value in the long term, mm-hmm. it kind of changes the economic calculations, right? So mm-hmm. it's like, I don't necessarily want to hire an engineer right now to build mm-hmm. some kind of web app, yeah. all custom, mm-hmm. because the patterns for all of that are, are so changing and so volatile. Yeah, yeah. And so it wouldn't really make a lot of sense for me with my 
current operation. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't really need engineering on the clear web. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense because yeah. I can do everything I want to do with no code tools. It is a mess and it's a headache and it's kind of mm-hmm. obviously messy and, and suboptimal, but it works. And so the incentives aren't there for me to hire an engineer right now. Yes. But if I'm building a company mm-hmm. that is on a computer that is going to last forever mm-hmm. and all of the structures and, and the value that we create by the combination of of the the audience and the the, the media and but also the the actual technology that that kind of organizes the group. Yes. If I know that I can we can retain that as a company uh, in this like forever computer, mm-hmm. it basically makes it it makes it economically more sensible to mm-hmm. to invest in something like real engineering. Yes. Yes. So that's that kind, that's kind of like a, a benefit of urban. You know, a lot of the critique will be like urban moves too slow or whatever the things things that kind of make it feel like not sensible to actually build on urban right now. Mm-hmm. But there is this counterpoint that you do get a longer horizon out of it, and when you can mm-hmm. when you can kind of project a payoff into the future longer, it does kind of enable more investment in a way. Yeah, and then there's sort of the absolute base reality of the situation, which is that urban is it's it's people. Urban is its community. You know, when you think about the roadmap of Discord, like you said, it's probably just a lot of like messaging and badgering. Maybe some devs on Twitter is like the most leverage you have here. The thing about Urban is that, you know, from the moment you obtain one and get one running on, you know, your computer locally on a Raspberry Pi, maybe it's hosted. But, you know, the thing is, technically, it's it's yours. The technical structure is under your ownership and can be sort of like self-enacted, self-built up. You know, you could, you know, dig yourself a hole and learn Hoon in, you know, 10 years and maybe come out a genius engineer. But I think the idea here is that this thing is, you know, it's malleable. It is a space and it is a technical thing that you can, in fact, uh, right this moment, you know, make your changes to if you'd like. Which is interesting because, you know, um, you know the, the roadmap for a lot of these other projects that cobble themselves together to build creator ecosystems who who knows you know what their VC funding is or what their like their their uh, lifespan is going to be, you know right now you know that the thing is yours for as long as you want to run it. So, yeah, it is a certainly different outlook in terms of time. Yeah, definitely. It's also kind of interesting to think about the connection between what you said before about mm-hmm. a network of sensors. Basically, mm-hmm. moons could become a network of sensors. Yes, that basically goes in the direction of Internet of Things. Basically, oh yeah, so, oh yeah. So so it's actually interesting to connect that with the creator economy stuff mm-hmm. because. One thing you see as a creator is there's a real demand for kind of in-person stuff. People love mm. people love meeting up in person. They, yes. I think they just always are going to, even mm-hmm. if more and more everything is kind of built and started on the internet. Yeah. There's always a, a trajectory towards people wanting to hang out in real life. And so there's an interesting way in which you could actually imagine the creator economy kind of group membership dynamic merging with the internet of things dynamic yeah. in a oh, way that's wild. Yeah. in a way right because you know if everyone is on their own personal server and you have a group or a community that's mm-hmm. digital but you're also like in your home maybe in your in your township in your neighborhood mm-hmm. building out internet of things structures mm-hmm. there's a world in which you know maybe if you live in Nebraska but you're like a member of my community right you when you come to visit Austin once a year when we have a conference or something yeah, yeah. you like are going to be plugging in to my internet of things here right <laughs> yes. but like only you can get it. only only the the urbit uh, addresses that are like approved within my group are going to be able to like plug into my yeah. fi- my physical internet of things Absolutely, network yes um and i think that these types of 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 ideas and visions are just like dizzying uh um, oh, yeah. yeah it yeah. is it absolutely is you know one of my hopes for this actual conference which you know, we, we have too much on our plate already and it would yeah. have added a lot more. But my hope is that maybe by one of these conferences, we could actually deploy, um, you know, some sort of like an urbit intranet over whatever city we end up going to next. Maybe it's Austin, maybe it's somewhere else. But it would be amazing to have effectively an overlay, you know, uh, conference over the existing topography of a city that exists via moons. There are some really interesting ideas here for basically deploying what is effectively like alternate universes or realities of space. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And it definitely jives with, I think, the current kind of trajectory of like the American political culture uh, where like people are, people just want to be in more in different worlds, I think, you know, yeah, like in a very the, real way. Yes. Yeah. It's, a, yeah. It's sort of like, you know, you look at one thing and it's, it's completely fragmented. It's fractal. It depends on what, you know, what vantage point you offer up. Everything is just, you know, fraction to different realities for sure. Totally. Like, mm-hmm. and, and people are kind of debating, you know, you know, is, is cancel culture going to keep going? What's going to happen to the culture wars? But it's like probably in the very long run, just the left and the right will have different internets, basically. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Urbit, Urbit could be the rails, uh, right? <laughs> 
right? We'll, I mean, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Is that crazy or what makes you laugh? I, I mean, no, I don't think it's that crazy. I mean, it's uh, already we're beginning to see that people on Urbit are effectively sort of, you know, the people who have, you know, in a way sort of unplugged from the matrix. If you want to kind of lean into that overused metaphor, it's like, you know, you have this sort of existing reality that is discourse. Um, which, you know, you can willingly eject yourself from if possible. I think it's one of the things I find refreshing about a lot of the community is that it's just people I think who just want to sort of like relate to one another as like other people, which is, it's nice, but you know, it is, it is another way of living. It's another sort of reality that is being occupied right now. Totally. For now, that's what it is. But I, if you do imagine a mm-hmm. world where it gains mass adoption, mm-hmm. then probably what I would expect to see is you, you would see, um, kind of molar formations on Urbit. So like there would be one part of the network that is overwhelmingly kind of left wing types sure, of groups, sure, yeah. one part of, and another part of the network that's overwhelmingly right wing kinds yeah. of groups. No, I can absolutely and, yeah. imagine that happening. The, I mean, and in fact, it's, it's one of the sort of aspects of the system that is almost explicit in the sense that computing because of sort of the way that it has been sort of put back into the hands of the person who is computing. It's a, uh, you know, you can turn off packets at will. It's, it's very, very easy to do. Um, maybe even dangerously so. You know, you mm. could uh, form a bubble immediately with an urbit and uh, maybe be the better or the worse for it, you know? So right. We'll have to see. I think the Internet of Things stuff is, is particularly mm-hmm. resonant with people because, you know, this idea that almost all the computing you do currently is on essentially other people's computers. Like yes. nothing on your laptop is yours, basically. Yeah. basically. Yeah, it's, very, very it's, like, it's like that simple. Like uh, even the stuff you feel that's most precious to you, your, your family photos, your personal writings, mm-hmm. literally none of it is yours. <laughs> it doesn't belong to you. Yes. It's kind of hilarious when you think about it. But that is very abstract for people. Mm-hmm. It's like when you just think about your laptop and what's on it, yes. people, not a lot of people get too worked up or feel too violated. Mm-hmm. But I find that the psychological response to the internet of things stuff is totally different oh, yeah. so like when mm-hmm. you know when people think about how like their you know their amazon alexa is listening to them that feels di- <laughs> it feels different like yes. that ups- that freaks people out mm-hmm. and worries them and scares them and just makes them feel gross in a way um like my wife for instance she's like very against she doesn't want to have a smart home she doesn't want to have any any of these <laughs> things and i'm like kind of nerdy i'm into tech and shit like i kind of want like a home that's all rigged up <laughs> i want like alexas here and and, and things and, and like <laughs> yes. all, all different things in different corners like with automations and shit set up to me, to me that's like cool mm-hmm. uh but our my wife is like doesn't want any of those things because she just finds it creepy and rightfully so mm-hmm. so I actually think that's a really interesting kind of inroad for Urbit because mm-hmm. you know if a guy like me can go to his wife and be like no look we're gonna have this like super <laughs> we're gonna have this super crazy automated like steampunk smart home where like you know the, you know you like push a button here and like a, a ball rolls down a train track and then like hits, you know, my computer on the, on the other end and turns on a light or something like that. Yes. Yeah. You know, we're going to set up this really cool automated thing, but guess what? Mm-hmm. It's completely autonomous. We own it. There's no way in or out and, and we have complete control. Mm-hmm. It's just like me hacking on it or yeah. whatever. Um, that is suddenly it's magical. It, yeah. it, it's magical. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's got this kind of cool romantic kind of steampunk kind of kind of like vibe to it and at least the way that I think about it yeah. in design ter- in, in design sense mm-hmm. and um, I think that that's like a real wedge in a way that like owning your data on your computer mm-hmm. people have become kind of like desensitized to it's, it's it's another edge to I think the idea of maybe moons being that sort of dark horse of what a, n- a new company could represent or be enacted through on Urbit which is very Urbit specific which is exactly this idea of just sort of totally owned uh, digital assistants or even physical ones um, Pop Rocks is actually, again, sort of a big, um, sort of like a person who just supports this sort of idea that, you know, Urbit IoT is just significantly different from what we kind of currently conceive of as being Internet of Things devices and such. Um, it's kind of like a bit of, uh, you know, it's, it's rooted in my own sort of personal interest as well, where I have a bit of a history in the previous work that I had been doing before Urbit in designing operating systems for the home. And so there's a very real desire here for this idea that a home could still be a very simple kind of manual, just very sort of like, you know, traditional structure, something that isn't spying on you every moment of the day. But at the same time, you know, if technology is developed such that it does respect that sort of the personhood of who you are, it isn't plugged into the great brain that represents any corporate, you know, sort of, a, you know, megalith out there. The, the idea is that this could be much more pleasant of an approach, I think. Yeah. And you mm-hmm. can also still imagine getting economies of scale and doing mass computing, Yes, but it would be purely voluntary. And oh. it'd, be, it'd be like you and your friends mm-hmm. or you and your neighbors. And it, it would be probably, I, yeah, I guess explicitly it would be opt in because that's kind of how Urbit is architected, right? Absolutely. I mean, there are already people who I think are trying to sort of um, get the bearings of how maybe you could set up a weather network on Urbit for people who deploy moons to the roofs. 
uh, and basically funnel it all into like a sort of collectively owned, you know, structure that represents, oh yeah, you know, now I have the weather data for my friends distributed across the world or the US or whatever. It could be very interesting to see little networks of, of data and little kind of like, you know, in-friend network markets that arise out of that. In a way. Yeah, this is kind of like the long-term, insanely cool aspect of Urbit that, yes. that people, I think, have a hard time even appreciating. And I think this is pretty far off. It's going to require a lot more en- time, engineering yeah. and development. But basically, being able to have kind of mass computational projects. So like, mm-hmm. you know, all, all of the machine learning models that, you know, Google or Apple use to provide us with amazing services. And that's the reason why we submit to this, like, um, feudalism where like we don't own anything. Yes. It's because it's because they get a lot of leverage out of all that data and they're running all these machine learning models and giving back to us really cool apps, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to be able to still have those things on Urbit in the long run. Yes. It's just going to be like you and a thousand of your friends <laughs> are, 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 yeah. are like agreed explicitly to submit your data. Mm-hmm. You have these like shared machine learning models, mm-hmm. right? Like all of this can be done across Urbit. In a, in a totally kind of containerized private mm-hmm. way. So you're still in a very long run, we're still going to have really badass, you know, mm-hmm. machine learning based tools oh, and, so, and sophisticated mass computing te- techniques. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be uh, within communities and explicit yeah. and, and private. And in that way, almost better, I think, in many respects, even like in a performance sort of manner to what you are recommended or told by these systems that basically treat you as, you know, an entry in a database. Right. The idea being that, you know, if my weather network is comprised of the people that, you know, I know and love and relate to like every day in my life, that's a, a, like a truly intimate network. That's a network that actually is representative of the people using it, which is, uh, I think, a very beautiful um, sort of future that we can look forward to. Hell yeah, man. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground and this oh, is yeah. <laughs> really interesting yeah. and, and fun. Is there anything going on this weekend at the conference that you're particularly excited about? Yeah. So, um, I mean, we're going to be giving a, giving a keynote on the first day, going to be sort of demonstrating some of the, uh, the actual finesse sort of, hey, this is what software distribution is. We're going to demonstrate how to do it. It's going to be very easy, hopefully. Um, but as things go in the Urbit world, you know, it's iterative. You know, we're going to make it better and better and better as we go. So that's one thing to look forward to. You know, we're going to be seeing some great um, some great panels. You know, we're going to be seeing some really fun uh, uh, other speakers going on. I'm personally excited and hoping to throw, like, a really fun, you know, music night on Saturday. More news on that TBA or TBD. Nice. Both, I should say. Um, but, yeah, it's going to be a fun night. Right on. Well, any any parting words? Anything we didn't discuss that that you want to discuss, or that's you know particularly interesting about Urbit? Yeah. Um, any anything else we no, didn't cover? Not, not particular, but uh, you know we we do joke around that you know we're kind of like uh, speed running sort of the development of the of the internet of computers as we know it. Um, you know, I think a lot of people like to overthink the, the 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 question of what is Urbit as a project. You know, the way that I like to introduce it to people, anyone really, technical or otherwise, is that it's just you know the the reimagination of a computer. And, you know, whether you know what a computer is or whether you think of a computer as being, you know, the thing in your pocket or the thing that you work on, it, I feel like that still speaks to a truth that this isn't a crypto project. This isn't, you know, uh, any sort of like project that I think would sort of like constitute some sort of newfangled fancy thing. It's just really simple. You know, it is that reimagination of what a truly personal computer can be. I'd go as far as maybe joking, you know, half jest, half real, that it may in fact be the only personal computer left. And we'll have to see. Awesome, dude. Thanks so much for hanging out. This has been awesome. Yes, it's been amazing. Thanks for being our first victim. I think it was a fairly smooth process. Yeah, yeah, this was great. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'll put links to your stuff in the in the show notes. I'll put your mm-hmm. Urbit handle also. Mm-hmm. And uh, so pe- people can find you on Urbit if they want to. Wonderful. So, yeah. yeah, thanks, Ed. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. All right, that's a wrap. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end, so you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you an Apple podcast. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show. And I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening. And thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.